This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the emdocs.net podcast, we're going to be looking at hemophilia. This is a bleeding disorder where there's a deficiency in one or more of the proteins involved in the coagulation pathway. This interruption of the normal coagulation cascade leads to excessive bleeding because there's inadequate formation of fibrin clots. The two types of hemophilia that we're going to be looking at are hemophilia A, or factor VIII deficiency, and hemophilia B, which is factor IX deficiency. These affect about 1 in 10,000 births. Hemophilia A accounts for about 80 to 85% of all hemophilia patients. There is no ethnic predilection for hemophilia A or B. In most patients, this is going to be an X-linked inherited disorder, but up to about a third of cases are the result of some spontaneous mutation without a prior family history of the disease. There's also an acquired form. This is a rare autoimmune disease with an annual incidence of about one per million. It's caused by the development of autoantibodies against factor VIII, which makes it inactive. We categorize hemophilia based on the available active factors that are present. The less available the factor in circulation, the more severe the disease. Severe hemophilia occurs when there's less than 1% factor available for clotting. Moderate hemophilia occurs with factor levels between 1 and 5%. Mild hemophilia occurs with factor levels between 5 and 40%. The age of presentation for a first episode of bleeding in patients with hemophilia usually depends on that severity of factor deficiency. For patients with severe hemophilia, the first episode of severe bleeding is going to occur anywhere between birth and four years of age. Most of these patients present in the first two years. For patients less than six months of age, we're most commonly going to see oral mucosal bleeding and head bleeding due to recent injury. After birth, they may have issues with heel stick bleeds or post-circumcision bleeding. In patients older than six months of age, hemarthrosis is going to be the most common presenting bleed. Once the child starts walking, then we're going to see bruising like forehead hematomas, we can see musculoskeletal bleeds, and we can also see mouth bleeds due to frenulum and oral injuries. Patients with mild hemophilia can go undiagnosed for years. One study found that the age of diagnosis for those with mild hemophilia ranged between 14 to 62 years. Now, I had mentioned earlier that hemophilia is X-linked and it's going to be predominantly found in males. However, females who carry the gene for hemophilia can have low factor levels and are actually at risk of bleeding complications. We no longer use the term carrier. These patients are not asymptomatic and they are at risk for bleeding. The new term is a female with mild or moderate or severe hemophilia, and this depends on the active factor levels available in their blood. These patients usually have symptoms of mild hemophilia, but they can have severe bleeding. We need to think about this condition when a female presents with bleeding after trauma, after giving birth, or after major surgery. In some cases, adults can actually develop autoantibodies against clotting factors, and it's usually going to be against factor VIII. These antibodies are termed inhibitors because they inhibit the activity of the clotting factor. This is called acquired hemophilia. This is associated with autoimmune conditions, malignancies, dermatologic disorders, pregnancy, and medications, but about 50% of cases are idiopathic. 
Let's get to the presentation. Patients with hemophilia present to the ED with bleeding, sequelae from bleeding, or complications after factor infusion. Bleeding and hemophilia can occur spontaneously or due to trauma no matter how significant that mechanism is. Overall, the most common site of bleeding is hemarthrosis in about 80% of cases. This is followed by intramuscular sites in about 10 to 20%, and then finally the CNS in less than 5%. Severe spontaneous bleeding can include intracranial hemorrhage, large hematomas or hematomas involving major anatomical areas like the airway, retroperitoneal bleeding, severe hemarthrosis or a hematoma with neurovascular compromise, and bleeding within the chest or abdomen. Intracranial hemorrhage, in particular, is the leading cause of death in hemophilia. Patients may also come in with ecchymosis, mucosal bleeding, and even subacute or delayed postpartum bleeding. Bleeding after a traumatic injury can be massive, or that patient may present with persistent oozing for days to weeks after a traumatic injury. When it comes to your evaluation in the ED, make sure to use the patient. And what I mean by this is that they are the most knowledgeable person about their disease. They can serve as a valuable resource for the evaluation and management of hemophilia. Patients usually manage trivial, non-life-threatening bleeds at home. If they have a concern for a major bleed, they're going to come into the ED. Make sure to obtain a detailed clinical history because treatment is based on the history, not the physical exam findings. If you have a patient with a known hemophilia, then there are several other important questions. First, what is the type of hemophilia? Second, do they know their baseline factor level or the severity of their disease? Next, are they on prophylaxis, and if so, what medication and route? When was their last factor replacement? Have they ever had severe bleeding like an intracranial hemorrhage? Do they have a history of spontaneous bleeds? Do they have known inhibitors, or have they ever been treated for them? Next, what is their HIV and hepatitis C status? Who is their hematologist? Do they have an emergency plan document? And finally, did they bring their home factor with them? This is important because you can use that factor for therapy. If you have a patient with suspected but undiagnosed hemophilia, there are some other important considerations. First, do they have a history of prior bleeds that are disproportionate to injury? Second, do they have a history of spontaneous atraumatic hemorrhage, ecchymosis, or mucosal bleeding? Third, is there a history of intracerebral hemorrhage or hemarthrosis? And finally, is there a history of familial bleeding disorders? The physical exam might be normal in the early phase of that bleeding episode. You need to perform a thorough head-to-toe exam here. Look for obvious bleeding, bruising, swelling, and places of hidden bleeds. The retroperitoneum in particular can be a site for a devastating bleed. These patients may present with vague back pain or groin pain. Maybe they come in with abdominal pain or flank pain. That pain is usually worse with external rotation of the hip. That means you need to look at their back, their flanks, and their gluteal area. Spontaneous head bleeds can occur with no history of trauma. These patients may come in with evidence of raised intracranial pressure like altered mental status, papilledema, and vomiting. The type of bleed that occurs in hemophilia is generally divided into two categories to help us with our management. Major bleeds are those that involve the CNS, the retroperitoneum, the airway or neck, eyes, the orbits, the chest, and then the GI tract. Minor bleeds can include the joints, the muscles, or deep lacerations. However, if there's a hemarthrosis that causes neurovascular compromise or extrapolated expanding, then that can be considered a site of major bleeding. 
lab testing really doesn't play a big role in the ED management of patients with known hemophilia. This should also not delay administration of factor replacement. If you do have time, you can obtain a CBC, a coagulation profile, and a factor activity level. Comparing a pre and then a post-infusion factor level can help the hematologist assess for a dosing change in that factor repletion. Once you have obtained labs, you're going to see that patients with severe hemophilia have a prolonged activated partial thromboplastin time, or APTT. They're going to have a normal prothrombin time, or PT, a normal bleeding time, and a normal platelet count. However, you can't use a normal APTT to rule out hemophilia. If the APTT is prolonged, the next step would be to order a mixing study. Basically, the patient's plasma is mixed with normal pooled plasma. That normal pooled plasma adds sufficient clotting factors to overcome that factor deficiency and correct the clotting time. However, if there's an inhibitor present, it will inhibit the clotting factors in the patient plasma and the normal pooled plasma. So that means the clotting time remains prolonged. Imaging is important in these patients. However, your initial imaging studies should not delay treatment with factor replacement. Another thing to keep in mind when it comes to imaging is that clinical decision tools and guidelines like the PECON criteria or the Canadian CT head injury or trauma rule do not apply to those with hemophilia. They should not be used to guide your management. That brings us to treatment. Management of patients with hemophilia who come into the ED includes first assessment and resuscitation of any immediate life-threatening emergencies. We also need to speak with their hematologist as quickly as possible. Treatment is based on the clinical history. Remember, the physical exam might be normal. If you or the patient or the parent suspect a bleeding-related problem, they need factor replacement. For superficial bleeding, you can use localized pressure and topical thrombin products. If the patient has a deeper laceration or continued bleeding despite those other measures, then you could use something like desmopressin, TXA, and aminocaproic acid. Desmopressin is used only for patients with hemophilia A, and usually those with minor bleeds. In patients with severe bleeding, the primary objective is to raise those circulating levels of the deficient clotting factors as rapidly as possible. For major bleeds, the goal is to raise that available factor level to 100%. For minor bleeds, it's going to be up to 50%. If the patient has brought their own clotting factor replacement, you can use that. There are several different factor concentrates that are available. All of these differ by their purification and derivation. However, the dosing for all of them is relatively the same. Each unit of factor 8 per kilogram raises those plasma factor 8 levels by 2%. So if you want to raise factor 8 levels to 100%, the replacement dose is 50 units per kilogram. Each unit of factor 9 per kilogram raises the plasma factor 9 levels by 1%. This means that to get to a level of 100%, you need to use a dose of 100 units per kilogram. If you have a patient with a suspected bleeding emergency and you don't know those patients' baseline factor levels, then just assume a factor level of 0%. If you're in doubt, give them a full factor replacement to 100%. Too much factor is not going to create a hypercoagulable state. It's only going to prolong the therapeutic levels of that product. All right, so those were the basics when it comes to hemophilia. Let's dive into some pearls and pitfalls. The first one is what to do with lumbar puncture. 
The big concern with performing an LP in a patient with hemophilia is the development of an intraspinal or epidural hematoma that could cause cord compression and paralysis. If you absolutely need to perform an LP, then pre-treat the patient with clotting factors before the procedure. You also need to perform factor repletion for procedures like a joint reduction or manipulation, a arterial line placement or a central venous catheter placement, an intramuscular injection, or an arthrocentesis. Our second pearl is what medications we shouldn't be using in these patients. Aspirin, salicylates, NSAIDs all interfere with clot formation and the initial platelet plug formation, and they should not be used in patients with hemophilia. We also need to avoid anticoagulants and antiplatelets. The next pearl deals with inhibitors. About 1 in 5 patients with hemophilia A and about 3 in 100 patients with hemophilia B will develop an inhibitor. These inhibitors usually develop within the first 50 exposure days to factor product. The problem with these inhibitors is that they interfere with the patient's own circulating factors as well as the infused factor of replacements. This makes treatment more expensive and less effective. Diagnosing the presence of inhibitors is really difficult unless the patient already knows that they have one. If they have a history of recurrent or breakthrough bleeds, that suggests the development of an inhibitor. They're diagnosed with a blood test that basically measures the amounts of antibodies in the blood. When a hemophilia patient with known inhibitors comes into the ED with a severe bleed, the safest immediate intervention is to give them recombinant factor 7A at a dose of 90 micrograms per kilogram. For patients with hemophilia A who are not on emesuzumab, then they could receive activated prothrombin complex concentrate. We'll have a table in the show notes breaking down all these recommendations. The final major pearl is what are some other important considerations in patients with hemophilia beyond bleeding? Patients with hemophilia can also present to the ED with non-bleeding related concerns. They may come in with a fever and you need to look for a central line infection or endocarditis if they have an indwelling port. Ports are usually placed in those requiring prophylaxis with factor concentrate two to three times per week. Keep in mind that IM administration of medications is not recommended. This can result in formation of a hematoma. The final consideration beyond bleeding is other infectious diseases. Adults with congenital hemophilia may have transfusion-related HIV or hepatitis. The first infusion of recombinant factor concentrate was in 1987. Before this, patients with hemophilia were treated with plasma-derived factor, FFP, cryoprecipitate, and blood transfusions. All of these increase the risk of infection with HIV and hepatitis C. Let's end with some take-homes. Remember, hemophilia is a bleeding disorder due to a deficiency in coagulation factor 8, which is hemophilia A, or factor 9, which is hemophilia B. The mainstay of managing patients with hemophilia is the immediate replacement of clotting factors based on the suspicion of bleed, rather than the confirmation of one on your exam, labs, or imaging. The doses for factor concentrate replacement in patients with severe bleeds are 50 units per kilogram for factor 8 and 100 units per kilogram for factor 9. The development of inhibitors can make the clinical picture and treatment much more complicated. Finally, consultation with your hematology specialist can help you, as can the patient. They know their disease best. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 